In this session, we'll be looking at the life of Jesus and uh, considering how he experienced rejection and how he responded to it. We'll be taking you through the New Testament, through the Scriptures, so I encourage you to have your Bible open as we look through the passages one by one. Um, <clears throat> the life of Jesus, just like the life of Muhammad, is a story of rejection, and it culminates really in the cross, which is the ultimate rejection of death and destruction. We've seen that Muhammad responded to rejection with self-doubt, uh, with self-validation, and finally with aggression and retribution. Uh, Christ's response was completely different. And like Muhammad, uh, Jesus' family circumstances were far from ideal. Uh, when he was born, the stigma of illegitimacy hung over him. For example, uh, in Matthew 1:18, we read this. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary had pledged to be ma- was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And then an angel of the Lord appears to, to, to Joseph and uh, says that uh, she has, Mary has become pregnant by the Holy Spirit and um, that uh, he should marry, therefore marry uh, Mary. And uh, so there was that stigma of illegitimacy that was already over um, Jesus' birth and his circumstances. Also, he was born in a stable, a place of animals, which is recorded in Luke chapter 2. After his birth, King Herod tries to kill Jesus, and he becomes a refugee, fleeing from his place of birth into Egypt. So chapter 2, verse 13, When they had gone, the Magi had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, Get up, he said, Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother. During the night, they left for Egypt, where they stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. And and Herod, when he realized he'd been outwitted uh, by the Magi, was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. And so that was a, a traumatic beginning, uh, fleeing uh, from uh, the killing of, of, those, of those infants, targeted, in fact, at Jesus. <clears throat> then Jesus began his teaching ministry. He was around the age of 30, and he experienced a great deal of opposition. Let's look at some of the kinds of opposition that he experienced. As with Muhammad, uh, religious leaders um, would ask questions of Jesus intended to trick him, undermine him, and uh, challenge his authority. <clears throat> Muhammad didn't really enjoy that experience very much, and uh, there's a lot of uh, recordings of, of Jesus' encounters with, the, with these leaders. For example, in Luke 11, chapter 53, uh, when Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions. So it's a war, really, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Well, what sort of questions did they ask him? They asked why Jesus was helping people on the Sabbath day, since uh, that showed that he was breaking the law. Why was he a lawbreaker? For example, uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath. And in Matthew 12, uh, chapter 10, 
um, a similar dynamic is, is taking place. So this happened uh, quite a few times. Um, Jesus uh, <clears throat> is about to heal a man and, and uh, they ask Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And uh, so they were trying to catch him out. Um, secondly, they were asking what authority he had to do the miracles. They challenged his authority. You're, you're some kind of rebel. You're not acting with God's authority. And uh, they do this uh, repeatedly. And they seem to in- imply, in fact, that his authority was not coming from God at all, but from something far worse. For example, in uh, uh, Mark 11, uh, chapter 28, um, the it says that the, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to Jesus. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you the authority to do this? They imply that he's acting without proper authority. Also in Luke um, chapter 20, verse 2, and Matthew 21, verse 23. They also uh, tried to trick him with, uh, with tricky questions. Uh, for example, in Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 2, they tried to trick him with questions about um, divorce. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They challenged him about whether it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. For example, uh, Mark 12, uh, verse uh, 15, uh, they came to him and said, they were trying to catch him in his words, verse 13, they came to him and said, teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men, so they flatter him first because you pay no attention to um, to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So they're trying to catch him out and getting in trouble with the authorities. They challenged him about what is the great commandment, and uh, that's in Matthew 22, uh, verse 36, uh, trying to see how he respond uh, to their, their searching questions. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? He'd silenced the Sadducees, so the Pharisees got together and they thought they'd have a go at him as well. They also were challenging him about uh, whose son is the Messiah. That apparently was a tricky question and they were, they were trying to find a way of uh, undermining what he was saying. There was also a question about his paternity. It's not surprising given the circumstances of his birth. Uh, there must have been someone that had heard that he was uh, born too soon uh, to be uh, actually David's, to actually to be Joseph's son. So in, in John um, 8, verse 19, and they asked him, where is your father? And the implication is that he doesn't have one. And Jesus says, you don't know me, and you don't know my father. Um, they challenged him also about the resurrection. They had some tricky questions uh, to give him to see um, whether he might uh, put his foot in it and perhaps... Uh, divide, be divisive, because uh, this was a, the question about the resurrection was a question about which uh, different groups um, would uh, would Jesus be aligned with, because some groups supported the resurrection and others didn't, and they were um, trying to, uh, to to catch him out uh, with these with these questions. Um, they also asked him to perform signs. Uh, they they were challenging him all the time, and, and the implication was. Um, that if he didn't do what they asked him to do, uh, that he was in fact a fraud. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. And Jesus said, why does this generation ask for a sign? And they also um, 
accused him. So not only did they question him about many things, but they accused him of doing miracles by the power of Satan, which is a very uh, serious thing to do. If someone comes to you and says that you're uh, inspired and your power comes from Satan, uh, you might feel quite upset about that. So the teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem and said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. So he's possessed by Satan, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. That's in Mark 3, chapter 22. Uh, That happened a number of times, in fact, uh, in Matthew 12, 24, and John 8, 52, and 10, 20. This was a repeated claim that he was demonically inspired. He was also accused of having disciples who didn't observe the Sabbath, Matthew 12, 2. And they didn't follow the cleanliness rituals, Mark 7, 2, Matthew 15, and Luke 11, 38. Let's have a look at what he said to them in Luke 11, what they said to him in Luke um, 11, 38. The Pharisees, noting that Jesus did not wash before the meal, was surprised that he wasn't washing. So they, ch- they, were, they were upset that he wasn't following the right rules. Um, he was also accused by John of giving invalid testimony. Very serious thing to be a, a false witness. Uh, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the Pharisees challenged him, here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. So when we look at Jesus' life, we find that he was uh, always being challenged and questioned by people, just as, Mo, uh, just as Muhammad had been challenged by the Jewish rabbis. So Jesus also encountered a fair share of those who wanted to ask him tough questions. And when we consider Jesus' life and teaching, we find that he experienced rejection from many different kinds of groups, not just from the, the religious leaders. For example, King Herod tried to have him killed when he was just a baby. Also, people in his own village at Nazareth took offense at Jesus. And as part of taking the offense at him, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. And uh, it was uh, really quite distressing. Imagine if you were visiting your own hometown and uh, they took uh, offense at you, uh, as it says in in Mark 6, um, verse 3. Isn't this a carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they, they, took, uh, they took offense at him. And uh, it's, uh, it's very sad. If you imagine you were going to your own t- hometown and um, they decide, all your friends and relatives got together and they decided that, um, well, much as nice as it was to have you visit them, um, they felt it was a fitting response to your visit uh, that they, they should take you and throw you bodily off a, a nearby cliff to, to get rid of you. Um, um, we found this, uh, this, this discussion of this in, in Matthew Uh, chapter 13, verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did he get this this wisdom from? Um, And then they began to take offense at him. And and, uh, Jesus said to them, only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. Um, uh, it's actually in, in Luke's gospel that the story about uh, throwing him off the cliff is. That's Luke chapter 4, verses 28 uh, to 23, after Jesus has declared um, that uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, that wonderful verse of declaration of inspiration uh, from God. 
It says the people were furious. They got up and drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right down through the crowd and went on his way. Also, it wasn't just his neighbours and the people of his village, but his own family members accused him of being out of his mind. Uh, In Mark 3, verse uh, 21, when Jesus entered the house, and again a crowd gathered then, so that he and his disciples weren't even able to eat because of all the people. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him because they said, he's out of his mind, he's insane. And they tried to take him over, take over his, his, and to take possession of him and stop him from teaching. In, um, in, in John uh, chapter 6, uh, verses, verse 60, <clears throat> um, we find that many of Jesus' followers were deserting him. The teachings that he was giving them were too hard and when, he heard, when they heard Jesus' teaching, they said on hearing this, uh, it says on hearing this, many of his disciples said this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And um, people were grumbling and they were turning away in verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So they were rejecting his message. And a crowd even tries to stone him in John 10 uh, verse uh, 31. Um, Jesus has just declared, I am the Father of one, and it says the Jews picked up stones to stone Jesus. And um, they said they're stoning him because of blasphemy. They tried to seize him, but he just managed to escape. Also, the religious leaders uh, tried to kill Jesus. They plotted to kill him. This is John 11, uh, <clears throat> verse, uh, verse 50. One of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest of the year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You don't realize it's better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. So he was speaking as high priest and it says um, that they plotted to take his life, verse 53. From that day on, they plotted to take Jesus' life. He was then betrayed, and this was uh, perhaps some of the most painful rejections of all, was the fact that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, one of his own circle, the one who shared food with him and uh, kissed him and was close to him. That was the one that betrayed him. And then Jesus was disowned three times by Peter, his chief disciple. It's recorded in Mark, Matthew, Luke and John as part of the Passion Narratives. It must have been a momentous event for Jesus' disciples to see Peter himself reject Jesus. And then we find in the narrative of the crucifixion that the crowd demanded that Jesus be crucified. And what a turnaround, because this, uh, this crowd had been welcoming him as the Messiah uh, just a little time earlier, and uh, he was famous for the good that he'd done, and many people had been healed. He'd brought hope and joy to many people. Um, but here they were uh, before Pilate, and they were declaring that they wanted him to be crucified. What shall I do then with the one that you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he done? Has he done? asked Pilate. He's actually declared innocent by the judge there. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And just to satisfy the crowd, Pilate um, released Barabbas to them, had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Um, he was also punched and spat upon and mocked by religious leaders. So when he was released into the custody of the religious leaders, uh, they, they, they mocked him and made fun of him and spat upon him. And then he was put into the custody of the Roman soldiers and they tortured him, giving him the lashes and abused him. And uh, uh, we've seen that in the, um, the Passion of the Christ, just how cruel 
and incredible that uh, that torture was of being uh, whipped by Roman soldiers and lashed by them. So he was mocked by the Jews and mocked by the Gentiles. Then he was falsely charged before Jewish and Roman tribunals and sentenced uh, to death. It's recorded in in the Gospels and I'll, I'll take us to John 18 Uh, verse 28. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning and uh, the Jews didn't go in because they didn't want to be unclean. Pilate came out and said, what charges are you bringing against this man? And they said, well, if he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't be giving him to you. And uh, Pilate said, why don't you judge him by your own law? And they said, they revealed their intentions. They said, "We we can't execute anyone by our own laws, because they wanted, in fact, Pilate to to kill him. So he was handed over to be judged by by the Gentiles. And uh, the charges were false. You can see that with the responses of the leaders, that they they couldn't actually bring anything against him. They just said, oh, he wouldn't be be innocent if we were were, uh, bringing him to you. Then he was crucified. This was the most degrading, humiliating and uh, excruciating form of execution available to the Romans. It was regarded also by Jews as a punishment incurring the wrath of God. Cursed is he who hangs on the tree, Deuteronomy 21, 23. So he was cursed in his death and uh, was held up to ridicule and scorn before the crowd. He was raised between two thieves who were not men of good character and he was reviled and mocked on the cross while enduring the agonies of death. So we find an incredible variety of people who rejected Jesus. Religious teachers, his own family, the people from his village, his own followers and disciples, the Roman authorities, the soldiers, the religious leaders, the crowd, everybody, everybody turned against him. When we consider the weight of all these rejections, uh, it's quite incredible that Jesus, despite his incredible power over the animals and the waves and the winds and over healing, Uh, healing bodies and casting out demons, that he is never aggressive or violent. He doesn't seek revenge. Sometimes he would just simply not respond to charges made against him. For example, when he was charged before his crucifixion in Matthew 27, 14. And the early church regarded this as a fulfillment of a messianic prophecy. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. When he was challenged to prove himself, Jesus would sometimes just refuse to do so, preferring to ask a question instead. He'd ask them a question back. He wasn't quarrelsome, though many times people tried to pick fights with him. This is fulfilled, the the verse that's uh, cited in Matthew 12, 19 to 20. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out until he leads justice to victory. This is really an incredible idea that Jesus would be vindicated and experience victory and justice by being quiet and gentle and not putting out a smouldering smouldering wick. If you've ever seen a smouldering wick, it's, it's just about out. There's almost nothing left. It's just smoking. Jesus wouldn't even put that out and he wouldn't even break a bruised reed which is unable to stand up straight. When people wanted to stone Jesus or kill him, he would just move on to another place. In fact, he advised his disciples when they're rejected in a town, just to go somewhere else. It's interesting in China today that missionaries are trained in missionary colleges often about how to escape, 
how to jump from second-storey windows and run away. That's part of the training of an evangelist in China today. So they're taking Jesus' example to heart. The only time when he didn't just move on were the events leading up to his death, when he uh, deliberately chose the path of uh, facing up to what God was calling him to, what the Father was asking of him. And the point about all these responses is that when Jesus was tempted by experiences of rejection, he overcame the temptation to retaliate and didn't succumb to it. Because if you respond with offence or self-hatred or self-validation or aggression, that is actually submitting to the rejection. I think this example impacted very profoundly on his followers. Peter and John and the others and, and Paul who heard about it were deeply impacted by what they saw. And the letter to the Hebrews summarizes the responses that Jesus made. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin, yet without sin. Jesus did not sin in his responses to rejection. And we also find in the, in the other New Testament writers a sense of amazement at the way Jesus responded and that we should follow in his footsteps. So the picture we have of Jesus in the Gospels is someone who's very secure in himself and at ease with himself. Um, you sense that he's one of the most relaxed dudes in the world, very cool with himself and, and at ease in, in even very difficult circumstances. He doesn't need to decimate other people. He doesn't need to, uh, to destroy them and prove them wrong even. Um, he, he reacted really well and beautifully to rejection and he was teaching his disciples also a theological framework for responding to rejection uh, instead of rejecting yourself in return and rejecting others. And I wanted to just go through some of the key elements of the teachings of Jesus about how to respond to rejection. <clears throat> One is he said that we should embrace rejection. It's a painful thought, but that's what he said. He said it's an essential part of his vocation as the Messiah of God to be rejected. And he said uh, it's pointed out in the scriptures that God was going to use his rejected one. The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. So that's God's plan to use what's rejected by people. Jesus also uh, identified himself and his disciples identified him with the rejected suffering servant of Isaiah. Uh, 1 Peter 2.21 and Acts 8.32-35, we see this connection being made. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with sufferings. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was brought upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Isn't this an amazing thought that by his wounds we are healed? That his sufferings bring us peace and relief and salvation? This is quite amazing. It even says that it's because of uh, the, the wounds of Christ that, that, that he healed people as well, physically. The cross is the central part of this plan, the revelation of the wisdom of God in bringing an end to rejection in the, in the, in the experience of humanity. And Jesus repeatedly refers to the fact that he will be put to death. He knew that he was going in that direction. For example, Mark 8, 31 to 32, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly about this. His disciples heard him speak plainly about this. So he embraced rejection. He went to the cross willingly. Secondly, he rejected violence. 
he explicitly and repeatedly condemned the use of force to achieve the goals of the kingdom of God, even when his own life was at risk. So in Matthew 26, 52, put your sword back into its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. If you want to live that way, you will die that way. And when Jesus goes to the cross, he renounces the use of force to vindicate his mission, even at the cost of his own life. He says in John 18.36, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would have fought to, my, to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. So he says, My kingdom is not of this world, and that's why my disciples are not using the world's mechanisms to bring it in. There is a reference to a sword when Jesus is speaking about the sufferings of the church. He says, don't think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, this is sometimes cited as evidence that Jesus supported violence and gave permission for it. But in fact, it refers to the divisions within families when Christians are rejected for their faith in Christ. In fact, the word in Luke's gospel has division instead of sword in Luke twelve fifty-one. The sword that Jesus is referring to here is symbolic, standing for that which divides or separates one family member from another. That was one of the ideas of a sword, it would separate. Another possible interpretation is that the sword refers perhaps to persecution of Christians. That is, the sword will be raised against Christians because of their testimony. But I think the better interpretation is that he's referring to divisions in families. So if one member of the family becomes a Christian, other members of the family might reject them and even try and kill them. So Jesus' rejection of violence was profound and amazing and uh, quite different from Muhammad and he had all the power in the world but he didn't use it with violence. And it's contrary to the expectations of the time as well about the Messiah, what the Messiah would do. The Jews thought that the Messiah would come, lift up his sword, call the men into battle and win a great victory for Judaism and establish Israel. But Jesus refused to do that so he went contrary to the expectations. That makes it all the more amazing. The hope of the Jews had been that the salvation would be military and political as well as spiritual, but Jesus rejected the military option. He made clear that his kingdom wasn't political. He said it wasn't of this world. He taught the people should give to Caesar what's Caesar's and God what is God's in Matthew twenty-two twenty-one, He denied that the kingdom of God could be located physically. It's neither here nor there, he said, but it's within you in Luke seventeen twenty-one. When confronted by disciples arguing about who'd get the best political position in the kingdom of God, seated at the right hand of Jesus, Jesus said that God's kingdom is not like political kingdoms that they're familiar with, where people lorded over each other and used their position to be mighty above others. He said to be first, you have to be last. He said it again and again. You have to seek to serve rather than seek to be served and to dominate. So he rejected not only violence, but the whole intended result of violence, which is dominance over others. Now, the early church really took these teachings to heart. It impacted very deeply on the apostles, and they reflected on them. Um, In fact, in the early Christian century, the first few centuries, there's a very interesting list of professions that were prohibited for Christians. Like, you couldn't be a Christian if you were a soldier, because it was thought that violence was incompatible with being a Christian. And uh, you couldn't be a Christian if you were a teacher, because the teachers taught Greek mythology, You couldn't be a teacher if you were a temple priestess or a prostitute, you know, so there were certain things. But one of the most interesting things is you couldn't be a soldier because of the rejection of violence. 
Now, aggressive reactions that we have to rejection feed upon enmity and hatred based on rejection and condemnation of others. Actually, the Quran says that Muhammad's followers would be comforted by enmity and hatred in their hearts. But Jesus taught that retribution was not acceptable, but only good should be given back for evil. It's wrong to judge others, Matthew 7, 1 to 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. Enemies should be loved and not hated. The meek will inherit the earth. Peacemakers will be called the children of God. It's an amazing declaration. The Sermon on the Mount reveals Jesus' attitude to power. These teachings are not just mere words which the disciples listened to and then forgot and thought, oh, they're nice words. In fact, Jesus' followers make clear in their letters that the principles guided them and shaped the way that they responded to rejection and to persecution themselves. For example, let's look at what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty, we are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless, when we are cursed, we bless, when we are persecuted, we endure it, when we are slandered, we answer kindly. Can you contrast that? When we're persecuted, we answer kindly with Persecution is worse than slaughter. It's better to kill people than to experience any opposition. Not only Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.11, but also Peter. Let's look up 1 Peter chapter 3. Chapter 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 10. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. We are called to return blessings for insults. It's amazing. That's our vocation, uh, to bless others. And Paul makes the similar point in Titus 3, 1 to 2, and Romans 12, 14 to 21. The apostles held up, were always holding up before believers the example of Jesus Christ himself. It had impacted them so profoundly. For example, 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 25. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no, no deceit was found in his mouth. It would have been a sin to return re- retribution and aggression for rejection. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This is an amazing revelation that in this uh, self-offering, in the way that Jesus bore upon himself all this hatred and rejection, we actually find healing and our liberation. Also, Jesus warned his followers that they should prepare themselves for similar experiences. As the teacher is, so should the student be. And he taught them that they should get ready to be flogged, hated, betrayed, and uh, put to death. Mark 13, verses 9 uh, to 13. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial... Do not worry beforehand about what you're to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it's not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. 
All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So Jesus warned them that they should really anticipate these kinds of bitter experiences of rejection, that it's going to be part of uh, the normal uh, Christian life. And then we see in the letter to the Hebrews this amazing uh, statement about um, in, in chapter 10, verse 32 onwards, he said that um, you used to have, uh, be suffering a lot, and it says you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. He's speaking about the Christians and their early experiences of coming to faith. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Imagine if someone broke into your house and took everything that you had just because you were a Christian. Would you say, praise God, they've taken everything I have because I have a greater treasure, and that's the treasure in Jesus himself. It just, it's a great opportunity for me to remember what's really important in my life. I'm so glad they've taught that to me because otherwise all these possessions would have just distracted me uh, from the real game, which is what Christ has for me. But Jesus, Jesus taught his followers to have that attitude. And when that letter to the Hebrews is written that way, it's based on, on the teachings of Jesus. And he warned his followers that they would be rejected in sharp contrast to the teaching of Muhammad, which encourages Muslims in response to suffering to kill. Jesus said, just shake the dust off your feet when you leave. Just move on, Mark 6.11 and Matthew 10.14. Not a parting in bitterness. He says, the peace would return upon you as you go. Jesus modelled this, of course. When a Samaritan village refused to welcome him, welcome him, his disciples said, why don't you just call down fire from heaven and wipe them all out, Jesus? We are so offended at those Samaritans. And Jesus said, he rebuked them and he just moved on. He said, none of that. What do you think you're doing? And Jesus taught his disciples they should flee from one place to another. In Matthew 10, 23, they shouldn't worry. Don't worry if you're persecuted and rejected because the Holy Spirit will help you to know what to say. He says that a number of times in Mark 10, 19 to 20 and in Luke 12, 11 to 12 and Luke 21, 14 to 15. They shouldn't be afraid. Mark 10, 31 and Matthew 10, 26. Let's look up Mark 10, 31. What does, what does um, Jesus say about being afraid. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions and in the age to come eternal life that many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So he's saying, don't focus on the things of this life because you have another world in view. God has a purpose and a destiny for you. And a distinctive teaching of Jesus was that his followers should rejoice when they're persecuted. Blessed are you when, hate, when men hate you and they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven because that's how the fathers treated the prophets. So Muhammad said, if they persecute you, kill them. And Jesus said, if they persecute them, you rejoice, be happy because you're in the right place that God has called you to. There's lots of evidence that this was really taken to heart by the early believers. For example, Peter writes, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Jesus encourages his disciples with the hope that along with persecution, they'd receive the gift of eternal life, the best is yet to come. And they'd receive this promise in the next life. And in order to receive that, they had to remain faithful and live a Christ-like life in this life. Now, I'd like to share with you some thoughts about the meaning of Jesus' life. You, you see all this incredible persecution loaded upon him from the right and the left and behind and in front. Everybody is rejecting him, 
right to the cross, the very worst thing of all. But you need to understand that Jesus rejected the temptation to sin. And when you're a Christian, you have no right to take offence anymore. We don't have any right to take offence because Jesus has taken offence for us. He's born it in himself. Not that he was offended, but he, he took all the punishment on himself. In Christian understanding, the human problem is not ignorance, but it's sin. It's an alienation between God and humanity, a rejection of God. And at the heart of this issue of alienation is the very problem of rejection itself. Adam and Eve rejected God's instructions to them in the garden. They rejected God, and so they tasted rejection themselves and were cast away from the presence of God and became subject to the curses of the fall. In the history of Israel, God provided a covenant through Moses to establish right relationships, but his people rejected that and went on their way. The key to overcoming rejection, human rejection of God, and the judgment that comes against us is the cross. That's the key. Jesus submitted to rejection on the cross, and he provided the way for us to overcome rejection itself. He has dealt with it for us. He's borne it for us. The power of rejection is the reactions that it triggers in the hearts of those damaged by it. By absorbing all that hatred and giving his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, Jesus defeats the power of rejection, overwhelms it with his love, and the love that Jesus showed is just amazing. It's so powerful. It's actually the love of God, the love that God had for him before the world was made. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God has this amazing love for the people that he's made. He loves them with his whole heart and that love lived out through Christ even to the cross sets us free from rejection. In his death on the cross, Jesus takes upon himself the punishment that's our due for rejecting God. The penalty of death he bore so that all people who believe in him will find forgiveness and eternal life. He overcomes the power of rejection he satisfies its penalty. The symbolism of sacrifice in the Torah, in the law of Moses, is that the shedding of blood atones for sin. And we understand that Jesus shed his blood for us, as in the song of the suffering servant from Isaiah chapter 53. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. In a very powerful passage in a letter to the Romans, Paul explains the sacrifice of Christ and how it brings an end to rejection by granting to us reconciliation. For if when we were God's enemies, Paul writes, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. And this reconciliation overcomes and destroys all rights of condemnation that might be raised by third parties, including human beings, by angels, or by demons, or by Satan. Paul writes in Romans 8, who will bring any charge against those to whom God, who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we're so reconciled to God that nothing can separate us from him. Not only that, but we've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation ourselves. 
So we become ministers of reconciliation, extending this beautiful gift of reconciliation to others. And by proclaiming the cross of Christ and its power to destroy rejection, we bring this beautiful aroma of Jesus Christ to other people. Paul writes 2 Corinthians 5.18, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So that's the wonderful gift that we've received through Christ. Now, one of the really persistent themes in Muhammad's life and, and journey was that of vindication. He wanted himself to be vindicated. When the people in Mecca made fun of him, he said, you'll suffer in hell. That was his vindication, their suffering. And he forces his enemies to submit to his creed, even at the point of a sword. Or he compels them to surrender and live as second-class citizens, as dhimmis, or just to, or just to die. But in the Christian understanding of the mission of Christ, there is a vindication. There is a vindication. But it's not achieved by Christ through violence or dominance. The role of the suffering Messiah is to humble himself, embrace rejection. Vindication comes through the resurrection from the dead of our Lord Jesus and ascension. And through that, all death and its power is defeated. So it's a comprehensive victory. Acts 2, 31, the, 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 the sermon of Peter. He was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. So Jesus did not vindicate himself, but he was vindicated, he was justified by his Father. Paul reflects on this in his letter to the Philippians in a very uh, famous passage. He must have been so deeply impacted. I mean, Peter as well and John, just so deeply impacted by the example of Jesus. It was, it's so contrary to the way the world works, so contrary to the way nature is. Um, this humbling of yourself, adopting a slave's role, obedience even to death. But, Paul says, God exalts Jesus to this position of supreme authority, not by Christ's own personal jihad or striving, but by God's sovereign vindication of his supreme offering of himself on the cross. So here's the passage. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. For Christians, to follow Christ means identifying with his death and resurrection. Jesus and his followers, his apostles, frequently spoke about the need to die with him, to put away the old ways of living to death and of rejection and all its fruit, of being offended, of violence, of self-hatred and all those things, to set them aside, let them die and be reborn and raised to new life according to Christ's way of love and reconciliation. We're not meant to live for ourselves but to God. When we experience suffering, 
We should rejoice because it's a way of suffering, of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. We share in his trials. We enter into his identity. That's our pathway to life. That's the evidence of victory that we are suffering and walking in the life of Christ. It's not a sign of defeat or humiliation. It's not something that we need to respond to with violence and aggression. God will vindicate the believers. One of the sad things about Muhammad is he makes God look really weak. Because anything that rejects Islam, people have to destroy. God can look after his own reputation. He's able to stand. He's got a, he's got a say in these things. It is God who will vindicate the believers, not the brutal powers of this world, not our swords or our money or our pride or our aggression or our dominance. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. It's really remarkable that Jesus and Muhammad, the founders of the two largest religions in the world, were both reported to be very rejected people. That commenced in the circumstances of their birth, their infancy, through to their family members, to the religious authorities. Both were accused of being insane, controlled by evil forces. Both were mocked, reviled. Both were asked lots of difficult questions. Both suffered betrayal. Both suffered threats to their lives. But these amazing similarities are more than made up for and overshadowed by the complete difference that had a profound impact on the way the two religions were established. Muhammad's life story demonstrates the full range of negative responses common to all humanity, including self-rejection, self-validation and aggression to others. But the life of Jesus went in a completely different direction. He overcame rejection, not by imposing it upon others or by comforting himself by hurting others, but by embracing it and thereby, according to our faith, overcoming its power, destroying Satan's claims and healing the pain. The life of Muhammad contains keys for understanding the imprisoning, crippling spiritual legacy of the Dhimma. But how much more the life of Christ offers the keys to freedom and wholeness for all those who have suffered from the effects of Islam and the effects of living as Dhimmis or being oppressed by the spirit of Islam, having said the Shahada. And we're going to see in the next sessions just how amazing the power of Christ is and the power of the cross to set us free from these two covenants, the covenant of the Shahada and the covenant of the Dhimma Pact. Praise God.